Trust you all found 1 Corinthians 13. As our custom, why don't we stand and read the Word of God? If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous. Love does not brag, it is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with all childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Please be seated. Well, as you can tell by the reading this morning, uh, today's sermon comes from one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible, often referred to as the love chapter. And it's familiar and famous to us because it's often quoted at weddings as a word of encouragement to the bride and groom. And so, you know, Evan and Tori are up at the altar and the pastor turns and says, Oh, you know, Tori, you look so lovely today. And Evan, you don't look so bad yourself. And then he turns to Tori and says, You know, Tori, love is patient, just like Evan. And Evan, love is kind, just like Tori. And your relationship's going to be built on this. Amazing start and all these types of things, right? That's kind of how it goes in these weddings. But as I've always said, context is key in the Bible. When Paul gave these words, this was anything but a word of encouragement to the Corinthian church. This was a flat-out rebuke. Pastor Dick Lucas, who I listen to regularly, said, When the Corinthians heard this message, there was a lot of pink faces in the church that day. The reason for this, of course, is that the Corinthians were many things, but loving each other was definitely not on the top of their agenda. And while the failure to love one another uh, was true in many areas of the Christian life, it was especially true in the area of spiritual gifts. You see, they had misunderstood misunderstood the purpose of them and how to use them in the corporate body. And if you missed my sermons on all this, I I encourage you to listen to them because Corinthians 13 is built off of those two foundational sermons. But I've learned a really important point in my studies. I can articulate the Corinthian problem so much better now that I've spent this time in study. You see, if the Corinthians could have a math formula, if they could have a math formula as to what it meant to be a Christian, it would go something like this. Possessing certain spiritual gifts equals spiritual maturity. Another way of saying it, 
the math formula, possessing, spiritual, or possessing certain spiritual gifts equals intimacy and closeness with God. Paul, of course, knew this was not the case. And this is why he said in verse 31, leading into our passage, I will show you still a more excellent way. This would have been shocking to the Corinthians. It would have been like pouring a bucket of cold water over their head. Because what could be more excellent than the gifts that we possess? What could be more excellent than that? That's heaven on earth. That's intimacy with God. What's more excellent than that? Paul says, let me tell you. It's not the possession of spiritual gifts that demonstrate intimacy with God or makes you a spiritual person. It's measured, measured in how you love one another. It's how you love one another. So to begin by correcting the problem then, Paul goes to the spiritual gifts that the Corinthians held most imp- to be most impressive. The ones that they thought were the spiritual ones that really had a, showed a tightness with God. And he starts with tongues. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now I believe the reason Paul started with tongues as the first gift is because this is the one they deemed most important in Corinth. If you were to go around Corinth and say, what's the most favorite gift you could have from God? They'd say, tongues, hands down. And he mentions two kinds. There's the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. The tongues of men would have been known earthly human dialects. So English, Spanish, French, whatever, they'd be known to the world. We see this in Acts. When the, when, the, when the Pentecost came, they started speaking in tongues, and everyone says, we can hear our own native languages being spoken. But there was also heavenly languages, Paul says. These are ones that were basically were uh, unknown. They were not known earthly dialects. And only God and the angels would have been able to understand these dialects. Paul says, if you can speak in any of those kinds of tongues and you don't have love, it means nothing. You think it's a sign of arrived spirituality, status before God and your fellow brother and sister? He says, you're nothing more than a noisy gong and a symbol if you do not have love attached to your spiritual gift. Now, you know it's normal for me to use commentaries in my my, um, sermons, and I often quote strong theologians and people that I trust who understand the spiritual truths. I want to introduce you to one fellow that I think can do a better job of explaining what a tongue without love is like better than any commentary that I've read. Oh, why can't I get there? Oh, I won't do it. That's too bad. (laughs) Here we go. We'll do it this way. Get the point? If you speak in tongues and you do not have love, you are nothing more than animal on the drums. You're a noisy gong and you're a clashing cymbal.
Next gift he talks about is prophecy. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the gift of faith as so as to... Or so, back up. Yeah, if I have the gift of prophecy and mysteries and knowledge, but do not have love, he says, I am nothing. What do all these have in common? If you have the gift of prophecy, mysteries, and knowledge, what do they all have in common? These are all supernaturally revealed things to God, from God to you. Factual things like a famine's coming or, you know, a, a warning of someone's like in sin. It's God basically coming to you and revealing something that no one else knows. It's exciting for people who have these gifts because they think it's a sign of intimacy. God spoke to me. Ha ha ha. Not you. So I'm above you. It's a spiritual badge, right? So listen up to me in my voice. You can imagine then the real shock when Paul says once again, it means Jack to God if you do not love one another in the congregation. And then he says this, if you have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, he says, you are nothing. What a real shock as well. Surely, the, surely signs of miracles and miracles occurring in your midst shows that God approves of your church. Surely he approves of your church, right? Miracle after miracle, God must be there. He must love your church. What does Paul say? Those miracles in and of themselves are not evidence of true spirituality or your tightness or relationship with the Lord. Without the way you love one another, if you mistreat one another, they mean nothing. There's a really important text in Matthew 7, 21. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Notice the two gifts, prophecy, miracles. What's the list in uh, Corinthians? Prophecy, miracles. He says, you can do these things. You can do these things. And I will tell you to get away from me. I never knew you. Why? They don't love. They're not loving the way God intended the world to work in his church community. You know what the key to this whole list is? What the Corinthians after are the showy gifts. Like the demonstrative gifts, the ones that are very easy to see and hear. Alright? So, notice, notice in this list, Paul doesn't say this. If you do not have the gift of administrations, or the gift of helps, you're like a noisy gong. Why not? They're not pursuing those gifts. We learned in chapter 12, they already think you're inferior if you have those gifts. They want the showy gifts, the one that everyone can say, look at me, look at me. And as I thought about this, isn't that true for today? 2,000 years later, in my, fellow, in my conversations with my fellow brothers and sisters who are more on the charismatic side, the debates I have with them aren't over the gift of administrations or the gift of helps or the gift of giving in Romans. It's in the areas of prophecy, tongues, and miracles. Isn't that true? 
In your debates with people, or your conversations, they don't have to be debates, but just general conversations, what are the emphasis in the spiritual gift uh, movements? These are the gifts. Nothing's new under the sun. That's what's promoted. You, you've never heard a charismatic say, come to the course we're having in one month in, uh, in Idaho. It's on the spiritual gifts of helps, administrations, and giving. Like, it'll be like two people will attend. But come to the conference on how to hear from God and experience His presence. We're going to pray for tongues. We're going to pray for prophecies. And we're going to have all these miracles and healings. Pack the saddle dome. Isn't it crazy? And what does Paul say? As valued as the spiritual gifts are within the body of Christ, they're needed according to chapter 12. They are not indispensable. In comparison to love, they are nothing. They're nothing. By themselves, in and of themselves, spiritual gifts say nothing about your spiritual status. They say nothing about your intimacy with God. They're of no value unless you function in love. Now, I've told you right from the beginning, we can't swing out too far to the other side. What's the other side? Truthfully, guys like me who want to fight against the charismatic movement. But here's, the, here's where you go too far on the other side. And this is going to shock you, I think. Maybe not. Did you know that Paul possessed every gift that he warned the Corinthians about? Paul could speak in tongues. Chapter 14, verse 18. He could teach mysteries. Chapter 4, verse 1. He could speak words of knowledge. 2.16. He could perform miracles, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And the text hints that he can speak words of prophecy in chapter 2, 7, and 14. Right? So here's the danger. Yeah, Andrew, preach it. Preach against the charismatic movement and their emphasis on gifts. Wait a minute. Do you love Paul? He had every single one. What's the difference? Paul says this. You can desire the gifts... But always make sure love is your priority. Desire the gifts. Make sure love is your priority. If you function in the gifts and you're fully loving, you're a healthy church. If you function in the gifts without love, you've missed the boat. Okay? Really important church we don't swing out too far to the other side. One of the most important lessons I've learned in my studies is this one. And I speak to myself when I proclaim this truth. But Paul's saying this, the true measure of, sp of your spiritual temperature, if you will, is that, and the is that the guiding principle in the, all you do and all you say, especially in the use of gift spiritual gifts, is that you love. Make sure everything is done in love to build up the body of Christ and not to wear a spiritual badge to say, look at me. But Paul goes on to make another shocking statement. Not only does the presence of spiritual gifts not give evidence for spiritual maturity, Neither were certain acts of deep personal sacrifice. Look at verse 3. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Wow. In our culture, we have a math formula as well. And it even exists in the church. You know what it is? Sacrifice equals spiritual. Personal sacrifice equals spiritual status. 
The more you give up, the more spiritual you are. Think of the monks in the monasteries. Does the culture look down on those men? They're held in high regard. Why? We look at them and go, as we're eating our ice cream, like for like, you know, half a tub, man, those monks that can like, fast and like, meditate for like, hours and just give up their personal fleshly desires. And people are impressed by this. They're impressed by it. They can give up the world to be spiritual and meditate and do all these things. We love that stuff. The world loves it. This is the thing Paul says, it means jack to God. It means nothing. It profits them nothing. It gains them nothing. Even martyrdom can gain you nothing if it's not done in love for a loving purpose that God approves of. There's so much more to say about that, but I'm going to leave that alone. I don't want to get down that path. So if this is not love, what is? Well, I told you this before. This was a rebuke list. This is a rebuke list. So when they were to hear, love is patient, love is kind, Paul was saying this, just so you know, Corinth, you're not doing these things. Okay? But one more thing. Paul wasn't willy-nilly pulling out a, a, a random definition of love. So he wasn't in his bedroom, like rubbing his hands together with a candle on, going, I want to write about love. I wonder what I should think. What virtues would best express love? That's not what he was doing. He was writing directly to the attributes that the Corinth had failed to live out. Directly. Let me give you three just for an example to prove a point. Love is not jealous. That's what he says in, in verse 4, right? Chapter 3 and verse 3. There's factions over the leadership. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos, right? Remember those in the introduction? He called them babies who needed milk and not solid food. And then I quote, unquote, for there is jealousy and strife among you. The Corinthians are jealous people. He then says, love is not jealous. How about arrogance? In chapter 5, verse 2, there's an immorality going on in the church, and it's not being judged by the church. They're letting it go. What does Paul say? You have become arrogant. And you should have warned instead. How about love does not take into account wrongs suffered? Remember my sermon on lawsuits I did about a month ago? In chapter 6 and verse 7, he said this, Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? You see, the Corinthians had a big spiritual report card. And the letter grade they got was an F in the area of love. And so Paul seeks to correct it. Now before we get too excited and want to throw the Corinthians under the bus, let's see how we're doing. Love is patient. It means to be slow towards, long-enduring. Don't raise your hand. Don't yell out any names. Does anyone get in your nerves in Genesis' house? Do you have your favorites? How do you deal with them? Quick to putting them in their place? Short-tempered? 
Paul says love is patient. How about love is kind? It means to be gentle. Are we gentle with our Christian community? Or are we kind of like rough around the edges with everyone? Love is jealous. Not jealous, I should say. The word means to be envious. To be envious. To be envious means that you want something else that someone has. You want something that someone else has thinking you will be fulfilled by having it. Could be material things. Could be a home. Could be the friendships that others have. It could be their health. It could be their job. It could be their understanding of the Bible. Maybe they have some spiritual gifts even that you would want. I never forget when I went to university in Camrose, there was only one Christian guy on our floor. At the time, I wasn't a follower of the Lord. And, but we'd have spiritual conversations, and I was quite antagonistic towards uh, Christian people back then. And, but he was a really great guy, and I was always sort of patient and gentle with him. But one day, he could sense jealousy rising up in me, and he said to me, Andrew, jealousy rots the bones. I was 19, so that goes back like 27 years ago. He goes, jealousy rots the bones. I never forgot that. Do you know what I didn't realize? He quoted Proverbs 14. <laughs> and he gave me a Bible verse, but I never knew it all this time. <laughs> Pretty cool. Important lesson I learned that day, but I never forgot that. Jealousy rots the bones. How about to brag? It means to, in Greek to flaunt oneself. Look at me! Look at me! Right? Everyone who does that wants to tell you about all their accomplishments in life. You get in a conversation, they ask you how your day goes, what's up, you're up to. Within 30 seconds, it's hijacked and it's off to what, they, what they've done that week and what they've accomplished and everything else. It's all about me. How about arrogant? It means in Greek to inflate oneself, to puff oneself up. It's basically pride. You think you're better than everyone else. How about unbecoming? What does that mean? It means to be rude. Love is not unbecoming, it means love is not rude. How are we doing? Are we offensive with people? Disrespectful? Fail, fail to have a filter? How about love does not seek its own? This is someone who insists on always having their own way. Their attitude in life is this. What's in it for me? What do I get? And what do I deserve? If I could... I spoke to the parents in the first service with young kids. If I could... If I can get one thing across to parents like over and over again with young children is this. Teach your kids that life isn't fair. It does not work on their terms. One of the number one issues I have in helping fellow believers in the Lord in terms of like overcoming pain is that they were raised to believe that life was to be fair. And they have heartache and hardships as adults because they've never gotten over that. Train up your child in the way they should go. When they're older, they won't depart from it. Teach them, that, teach them that you're there for them, you love them, but life doesn't always work on their terms. Don't seek their own interests. How about love is easily provoked? This is when someone is, it means irritable in Greek. You know touchy Christians? You know people who are very, very sensitive? That you have to walk in eggshells around? That if you do or say anything wrong, at least they, from their perspective, that they're going to lose control? 
at the drop of a hat? And you're afraid to engage them because you know that they won't stay calm and cool? We're to stay level-headed. Level-headed. Short, like not short-tempered, but long-tempered. We don't blow a gasket easy. How about wrong suffered? It means to set down as a matter of account in Greek. Wrong, to, 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 love, to be unloving in terms of harboring um, wrong suffered means that you, you, you keep a record, like a ledger or a score, of all the injustices done to you. You keep a score. You know, if you've been embarrassed in the past or someone hurt your feelings, you keep a score. And you look for opportunities for payback. Now, there's two kinds of accounts in payback. Two kinds of accounts. One, what you owe me. And second, what I owe you. Okay? So what you owe me and what I owe you. For love to overlook wrongs deals with the account that says, I owe you. I owe you. Meaning, I owe you payback for what you did to me. But do you understand how the gospel challenges that? Did you know that you and I have an IOU account with God? You and I have an IOU account with God. If he took matters and justice into his own hands, he would say, you all sinners, you're done with me. And yet he went to the cross, overlooked your wrongs, and was willing to die for you because he loves you. So he can restore you to relationship with himself. Why then can't we turn around and release someone else of the account that's owed back to us? That's the gospel. How about love does not rejoice in unrighteousness? It means wrongdoing. So that means that love doesn't celebrate when we see things that are sinful or evil. How about bears all things? It means to cover or hold off. Cover or hold off. It's withholding potential harmful information. You hear something and you decide to keep it to yourself. So here's the question. Are we quick to expose others' secrets and what they've done? Or are we slow to expose? I call these people tattletalers. Tattletalers. They can't wait to point out other people's flaws, but they fail to see their own. How about love believes all things and hopes all things? These mean, believes means to give credit and hopes means to trust. Really, these two together means that you assume the best of someone until you know the worst. People who don't believe all things and hope all things, they automatically hear a report and they believe it to be true. And so therefore, they already have it in their head how to get back. And they rehearse things in their mind about what they're going to say to that person, how they're going to treat them the next time they see them. If I've learned anything in the ministry, like I've learned some really fundamental lessons. Like I could probably tell you my top five lessons in ministry if I, you know, one of them has been this. Always believe and hope the best of every person in the congregation until you know otherwise. I can assume all day long why um, you didn't fold me back. <laughs> right? Or why I spelled your name wrong. <laughs> 
Until you hear my heart and know my mind and we have a conversation, we don't know exactly what's going on. If I had gone after people for what I thought they were thinking and doing, right away, I would have, this church would be empty. Because I would have assumed the worst about someone and they would have been upset with me that I didn't trust them more or that I didn't know them better after all these years of the relationships we've had. When anyone in Genesis' house, if you hear something or someone does something, believe the best and hope the best of that person and have a conversation to clear the air. Don't let bitterness and gossip become the outcome of that. And finally, love endures all things. This is someone who suffers patiently and it actually has the word bear up under. You bear up something, like a jack, you know, under a truck or something. This is when you see problems in the church family and you move underneath that load and you carry it until there's no more room for need. Do you know what the key of all these virtues is, church? It means saying no to yourself and yes to the other person. What is love? It means no, saying no to yourself and yes to the other person. This will always require a choice over the, how the feelings and the flesh rise up. When the person who aggravates you wants, uh, comes along on your path and threatens you to be patient or makes you feel impatient, it's a choice to be patient. You'll never feel like being patient. It's a choice. The Spirit says the fruits of the patience are love, joy, patience, peace, self-control. The Spirit comes and does His work. He says, you know, dawn, patience, and uh, patience. We're at a crossroads. We choose the flesh or choose His way. It's a choice. But your flesh will never say, go the roots of love. And what gets in our way in this, from my experience, just in the way I see things through the world, is that people who want their personal rights always met are always going to struggle in this area. We live in a social justice, my rights world. The media portrays, it's all about me, all about me and my rights. The gospel flies completely in the face of this. It's about God and your fellow brother and sister, not about you. Not about me. The faster we learn this, the faster we honor the Lord with the way we love one another. Me and Dan have a phrase we use in ministry. We take it on the chin for the greater good of the community. So I, and I'm not, you know, so Tony, I feel that you hit me, and I just, oh, like, and I want to hit you back. And we say, no, shut your mouth. Overlook the wrong. Take it on the chin for the greater good of the relationship. So when I see you next, I can engage with you and love you. And you don't even know anything's wrong because I've chosen to forgive and go the Lord's way. Sin's different. Sin, there's a process in Matthew 18. We can do that. But even then, when we engage people, we do it with patience and love and self-control. So right from the get-go, Paul wanted the Corinthians to see that love was a true measurement of what it was to be a follower of Christ, not spiritual gifts. But then he continues to further his argument in verses 8 through 13. 
by comparing the value of love over spiritual gifts. The value. Look at, read this with me. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Two points I want to make from these verses. Number one, Paul is clearly contrasting the eternal nature of love to the temporary nature of gifts. You catch that? The eternal nature of love to the temporary nature of gifts. So the the eternal nature of love, verse 8, love never fails. Not love fails sometimes, or gets an 80% score in the report card. Love never, ever fails, both in this life and the next. Gifts, however, are temporary. Prophecy, verse 8, will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away with. See how Paul's argument's brilliant? What have the Corinthians done? They've backed the wrong horse. They've backed the wrong horse. They think that the gifts are like everything and not love. Paul says, you've got it backwards. You know how this applies? It's when the person that's the charismatic brother and sister you talk to, that come to you and say something like this, you know, um, you should have seen the Spirit moving in church today. It was so powerful. The church was speaking in tongues. One person's leg was healed. It was like heaven was here now on earth in our services. What does Paul say? In heaven, there's no spiritual gifts. They don't exist in heaven. There's no spiritual gifts. You're not going to say to speak in tongues in heaven. You're not going to heal someone in heaven. You're not going to prophesy in heaven. But love, <laughs> you bet, love's eternal. You will be with God in glory, in relationship with Him. Love is the foundation of heaven. You got there because of Christ's sacrificial love in the first place. Love is eternal. The gifts are temporary. Corinth, you've got it backwards. The charismatic friends that we have, you've got it backwards. You think heaven's here on earth now? It's how you love one another. That proves whether heaven's here or now. Because that's what's eternal. If not, you're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You're like animal on the drums. You know how this applies? This is an incredible story. So Dan, that trained me for ministry, told me a number of years ago, before I even met him, a woman came to his house. And she knew that Dan came from the Pentecostal background because he was raised in the Pentecostal church in, um, in uh, uh, Salmon Arm. 
She was presently a very charismatic uh, person. And she said to Dan, um, knowing that he left the denomination to go to the Free Methodist Church, said, don't you ever miss the services? And he says, what do you mean? And she goes, well, don't you miss like where everyone's raising their hands and praising God and people are speaking in tongues and don't you miss experiencing God's presence there in the services and this overflow of His love? One week later, that woman's daughter sat on his couch and, and Dan got to meet her and she says, I hate my mom. I hate my mom. And Dan says, why? And she started to reveal how the relationship was broken due to the lack of love. I couldn't make that story up if I, even if I tried. Do you get the point? Do you get the Corinthian problem? Do you get potentially our problem? This is so important. Gifts are temporary. They're not a sign of heaven on earth. How you love one another is a sign of heaven on earth because that's what's going to exist in eternity. One more thought to leave you with. And I have to deal with this because uh, it's important for you to know. When, uh, in verse 9, Paul makes this declaration. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When you read that verse, it might just go over your head and you think nothing of it. Do you know that that verse divides churches? It splits us into denominations. Into two groups. One called cessationists and one group called continuous. You see, you notice when the tongues and prophecy and knowledge are going to be done away with? When the perfect comes. So when the perfect arrives, it's all done away with. The question is, what's the perfect? The cessationist says this, the spiritual gifts were only given for a brief period of time in church history, namely the first century, and the purpose of the gifts was, was to authenticate the apostles' ministry. So once the New Testament was complete, meaning the apostles had written all their letters, there was no more need for the gifts because those gifts were only there to give revelation that was yet to come in the Word of God. So, if I spoke in tongues or had a prophetic message or whatever, then therefore that would continue. But once, the, once Corinthians was written, once Thessalonians was written, then there's no more need. Okay? So the perfect is the completed New Testament canon. The continuous says something different. The perfect is not a reference to the New Testament completion of the canon. It's a reference to the time when Christ comes back. So gifts continue today in the church until, the, until Christ comes back. Now, I'm not going to make this a divisionary thing in our church, but I, I am 100% in support of the continuous theory. Our theory, just the continuous belief. 100%. The, the exception would be the apostles. The apostles can... Like the apostles had a specific ministry, but the gifts that we're talking about can still can continue. Why would I say that? Because in verse 11 and 12, he makes it, verse 12, he makes it more clear. He says, For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I've also been fully known. He says this, in terms of the perfect, 
He refers to the perfect as a time when you'll see someone face to face and you'll have full knowledge. When, does, when are we going to be seen face to face? When are we going to be fully known? That's when Christ comes back. When he comes to restore his kingdom. That's why gifts cease, because now we'll know God fully, just like he knows us. And now we'll get to see him face to face. Think of Moses, who saw God, like, you know, wanted to see God's face and so on. We'll get to see him face to face. Again, this is a heated topic in the church, but I'm going to be teaching you the continuous understanding of the spiritual gifts. And this, I start with this passage and work my way backwards. But, here's what's important. What we learn here is salvation is largely future. Salvation is largely future. We're going to experience God and know things in ways that we never thought we could before. And again, this is important because the Corinthian problem is the opposite. They think that the gifts show that they know God fully now. And they think everything's come to them now. And he's saying, no, it's temporal. You don't even know God or anything the way you're going to know him in the future. And the gifts are going to continue, he says, until Jesus returns. And then they're gone. So what can we learn? Number one. As valued as the spiritual gifts are within the body of Christ, they are not indispensable. In comparison to love, they are useless. Chapter 12, spiritual gifts are given by God. They're needed. It helps the body function. But without love, they're useless. They're useless. Number two, love, and not the presence of spiritual gifts, or the possession of spiritual gifts, is a true spiritual temper to check on how healthy we are in relation to God and with each other. What's the measure of spiritual maturity? How you love one another. That's the measure. Number three, love is not a feeling, but a choice. And it's to be the guiding principle in all that we say and do, including how we to operate in the use of spiritual gifts. Paul, remember, that's really important for those of us who swing out to the side. Paul possessed all the spiritual gifts. And yet he's, and he even says, imitate me as I am of Christ. So having the gifts is not the problem. It's not accompanying them with love and how you use them that's the problem. And Paul could not be accused of that. And so we're seeking the healthy balance at Genesis House, where we pursue their gifts, but we never neglect love as the priority. Number four, spiritual gifts are temporary and will cease to exist at Christ's return. But love is eternal in scope. Much more could be said, but let's have a time of dialogue. And I'd be curious as to your thoughts and questions.